Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by our very special guest, Noah Tai. Uh, Noah, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great to be on the podcast. <laughs> Noah, we initially met on Twitter when you had this sort of great uh, series of threads on, uh, on what we can call mental modeling. You, you, you call, uh, what do you call it? Not, not exactly life hacks. Yeah, something a little, bit, a little bit more than life hacks, a little bit less than sort of what would classically be called philosophy. Yeah. Uh, I like that. So we'll get, we'll get into that. But first, how do you sort of uh, define yourself or explain to others what you're about, what your perhaps mission in life is, or what you like to spend a lot of your time thinking about and exploring? <laughs> kind of, there are a couple of perspectives on that. But first is this quote from Herman Hesse's Glass Speed Game that I love. He says, uh, every one of us should be uh, on our way towards perfection should be striving to reach the center, not the periphery. And so I kind of want to be working on something that is, uh, that is common to, to any pursuit, whether you're coming at it from sort of software development or from like, uh, I don't know, uh, the arts or, uh, or writing or anything, but more concretely, um, I do a lot of work, in like uh, software development tools. So I'm a programmer by trade and, uh, and I really am just really impatient about all the software that I imagine is going to be written in a hundred years. And so I end up spending a lot of my time working on tools to accelerate that, uh, that process. What might that look like or what more color can, can you give on that? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, super undefined, but like one is that uh we're the inheritors of this tradition of like nerds in the seventies spending a lot of time alone. Uh, and I think there's a lot of uh, potential in, in making programming be uh, move from sort of a single player game to a multiplayer game is I think what, uh, what Patrick calls on describes it as. Um, so it's like increasing collaboration is one of those. We just don't know how to collaborate on software, I think. And, uh, and another is like understanding like, what would it mean to visualize software, for instance? Like, we have these giant text files, nobody knows what they, or sorry, we know what they mean, but it's hard to, like, zoom out in the way that, we, we know how to zoom out on a graph, right? Uh, we know how to zoom out on a, on a map, we know how to, like, look at things from, the, uh, from a broader perspective, but it's hard to really get a sense of what a, what a computer program is like at a distance. Um, so that's another thing that maybe we can make some progress on. So... We talked a little bit about uh, on Twitter. We started talking about mental models. How did you sort of get interested in them in the, in the first place? You come up with some pretty original ones. Paul Graham in his essay on uh, on philosophy, he talks about how like philosophy is this pursuit, it's, and it's where you end up when you just try to become more and more general. Like you're searching for like wisdom, you're searching for the most general kind of knowledge. And uh, and he says that actually ends up taking you away from something that's practical, and so. I'm always looking for stuff that's like both practical, but as general as possible. In in my teenage years, I spent uh, probably like three or four months reading uh, the entire book of Proverbs in the Bible uh, every day uh, because it seemed to be like close to that sweet spot of having pretty general knowledge that's like 
still pretty useful, um, uh, still pretty usefully applicable. But when I started working, I realized like there's a ton of stuff that isn't like uh, isn't so concretely applicable that like you learned it in school or learned it in books, but also just like seems to have, you have to learn it the hard way. Um, and there were a lot of things in particular uh, for me that I would maybe because of my background, um, just like the kinds of things my parents would teach me, um, uh, or because of uh, like time that I invested in learning to program computers uh, instead of sort of more general life things. Uh, I just started observing uh, what worked and uh, what didn't in my life and trying to like change things and like observe, observe in my coworkers and mentors what I really uh, admired about them and try to try to extract something from their experience uh, in a way that I could uh, actually apply it to myself. Let's talk about advice. You've thought about advice from a few different angles. <laughs> what advice do you have on advice? <laughs> yeah, meta advice. When I was younger, and particularly um, right when I started working, I would like find, I really treasure the opportunity to like talk to people that I admired. And then I would just ask them like, oh man, what advice would you give to, uh, uh, you know, to me, to like a, a 20 year old who just started working. And a bunch of them really wisely actually <laughs> said, well, I don't really, I don't really know you well enough to give you any advice. <laughs> when we're looking for advice, what we want is like the thing to do. Uh, we, we want some like precise extent to which we should do something like how much time should I spend um, reading every day or how much time should I spend improving my skills rather than uh, rather than actually executing on them uh, we want to be a thermostat like there's a there's some degree that we want to get to uh, but in fact we as humans with human language we don't have the ability to articulate like this is the precise degree to which you should do something all we can really say is you should do this a little more or a little less. What we can say is like, we're, we're less like a thermostat and more like a bathtub. We can be like, okay, we're going to be a little hotter or a little colder. And because all advice can only be given in those relative terms, the only good advice can come from someone who really knows us. And this is actually Socrates' argument against books. Um, so in, in the Phaedrus dialogue, uh, Socrates says, oh, you know, books suck. The only thing that's really good is like talking to teachers. Uh, and he makes... The first argument he makes uh, is, is that, oh, you know, if we have books, people will forget things. Their memory will be worse. Um, and people like to kind of make fun of this argument the same way you make fun of, like, uh, the people who say you can't look up anything on Google. So it's easy to make fun of that argument. But he makes this other argument uh, that's actually really good. He says, look, a book doesn't know who you are. A book doesn't know what you need or, or what knowledge you already have. He says only a teacher who knows you can do that. Uh, Adler uh, in How to Read a Book, a uh, fantastic book, uh, says, uh, gives you the strategy for reading where he says, like, look, you need to figure out what you're going to get from a book and actually pursue that. You need to be like actively reading a book and figuring out what you know uh, that the book is trying to, what you already know that the book is trying to teach you, as well as what you don't know and trying to, uh, and trying to seek out the knowledge that the book can give you. Because we can only give advice in relative terms, but because people also really believe the advice that they give, people tend to end up crystallizing in their mind the advice that they themselves need and saying, oh, everybody should, I don't know, everybody should learn to code or everybody should read or everybody should study the liberal arts or whatever. They give you this 
relative advice and they cast it as absolute. They say, you know, everybody should do this. So I guess the, the caveat that I would give before any, <laughs> before I move on to any other topic is just that, like anything I say is probably only useful to someone who's more or less like me, who's kind of maybe has similar attitude or background as me and is, and maybe is thinking about these things and just hasn't, you know, if I, if we gave them a couple more years, I'm sure they would get to it. But, uh, but if I can kind of, if, if I can kind of light the way ahead, not by like a mile, but like a couple feet, then maybe that's good. You know, I'm inspired by this idea you have of uh, you're trying to find what's both practical and also general as possible. It, it does seem that there's sort of a wave of, of like mental model sharing. Like it's, it's all the rage. <laughs> like people are having books about mental model. Like it seems that that's sort of a concept that has been around for a long time, but is really taking off or becoming mainstream or, or we're sort of on the, maybe the cutting edge of, of really exploring understand, I guess. And, and, and part of that is sort of the, an understanding, increasing understanding of, Hey, we're not wired for certain things that make us happy or, or that make us wealthy or that, you know, even like help. We're not wired to live the way that we currently live. And so how do we sort of trick ourselves in some way, or how do we sort of change the lens by which we, we view things so that we adjust better? Does that resonate with you or how do you sort of think about that? Yeah. There, well, there's one way to think about mental models, which is very much like, look, we have these biases and if we instead cache things in these mental models, then it'll be, that's a way to overcome these biases. Right. So like that's like the scientific method is like one, of course, extremely successful and, and, uh, and popular model uh, that's all about sort of overcoming your intuitive ex- expectations about the world. Another way I think about mental models, though, is as kind of like a vague understanding. So this actually gets to, uh, this actually touches on the scientific method. But I think if you're very clear about your mental models and you make an effort to fit everything that you encounter into your mental models, uh, then you become much more aware, encounter some new piece of information or some new phenomenon that actually doesn't fit in. And if you're more aware of those, then you can actually um, sort of iterate faster on your thinking. You can, if you're, if you're immediately aware that you've encountered something that doesn't fit your current thinking, you can very quickly say, oh, that's a thing that I need to uh, change my thinking on. I need to figure out how to understand this new thing that I, that I currently evidently don't understand. So I almost like thinking about mental models as like an opportunity to show uh, how my thinking is flawed and how it can be improved. But then another way, another way to think about mental models for me is just like almost like uh, like an abstraction, like the way if you're you know if you're writing code, you write the same line of code or the same couple lines of code a dozen times, you end up you say you know what I'm not going to think about this anymore. I'm just always going to do it this way, and then you write a function. Similarly, like there are some things where if I have to you know if I have to keep thinking about them, it's going to be exhausting, uh, and it's and it's worth just uh, sort of caching that and always doing it the same way. Um, so those are kind of, I guess those are sort of three ways to think about mental models that are somewhat intention. What do you think about this idea of, you know, there's this quote, I, I, don't, I can't remember who said it, but we have, uh, you know, paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And that there are different ways for us to better adjust to surround it. One is to, you know, <laughs> upgrade our emotions genetically, uh, via some futuristic, you know, CRISPR-like technology. The other is to 
uh, change our institutions. Like that's what Nudge was trying to do. I think in some sense, like choice architecture, you're changing incentives. And then there's I guess mental models, sort of its own version of that, or it's changed society so that it fits better to our wiring, what we're wired to do. Like for example, uh, let's say jealousy is emotion. We're like wired to be jealous. Do we trick ourselves to be uh, less jealous? Do we change our institutions so that, I don't know, we have just as much money as the other people? Or do we, do we hide it somehow? Or do we, do we give in to this wiring? Or do we try to change it via, or hide it via institutions? What, what do you think about that construct? Yeah, man, I think there's, at a super high level, there are definitely things that we want to sort of change and overcome, such as I think Jellies is a good example. And I think that sort of path leads to this very sort of rational way of thinking that's, um, you know, more or less uh, sort of the Western tradition. But at the same time, I think there's, there's other times where it's actually important to not give in to your emotions per se, but like let your, um, let your intuition guide you uh, because sort of the systematic analytical thinking uh, is insufficient and it's more necessary. And because those things are insufficient, it's necessary to kind of make judgment calls. Like one, one way to think about this is the, is the distinction between sort of the judiciary and the legislature in, in government, right? Like the legislature is like, the legislature is like, well, we're going to make these laws and make these rules and procedures and systems that are codified. Uh, but then when you get to the judiciary, while they abide by those rules, there's also a ton of judgment that's, uh, that's reserved for the, for the uh, judiciary because the entire point is it's an acknowledgement uh, that those systems are insufficient. Um, that being said, you know, it's, I think it's somewhat difficult to talk about, uh, for me at least it's somewhat difficult to talk about uh, developing intuition. When it, comes to, when it comes to mental models for dealing with those biases, I think you phrased it as sort of like tricking yourself into thinking differently. And I'm reminded of this uh, uh, Morihei Ueshiba, the, the inventor of um, Aikido, the uh, Japanese martial arts said, um, he said, you know, the, the teacher can't actually teach you the techniques. Um, he can only like put you in an environment where you can learn it for yourself. Uh, and I kind of think the same, the same way for uh, the mental models, particularly the ones we've talked about, or we're going to talk about rather, they're less like a way to, they're less like a key that will, that will immediately change your mind and more like an environment in which like once you think within these models, they will sort of guide your thinking towards maybe being less jealous or, uh, or being more, um, thinking more rationally about, um, about whatever problem is at hand. How do you sort of make sense of like, what's your best sort of explanation for what, emotions are what purpose they serve and what to do with them <laughs> i think yeah, another, yeah. another way of framing that would be like you know or one potential response could be something like hey emotions are sort of you know feedback loops or signals uh that that something is is awry and sometimes we should listen to them and sometimes we shouldn't because they were wired for a time where where we only lived in groups of 20 people or you know reproducing was the most important thing and that that's what it's trying to tell us and we should develop some sort of fluency around when these are correlated with things that don't, that don't serve us and, and when, they, when they are. How, how would you sort of respond to that and what's your take? Basically agree to both of those at the same time. Um, and uh, like I basically think that emotions are, this, are, are the ultimate output of this huge 
information processing system that is our subconscious. And I think it's basically bad to ignore them. Uh, but also there are times when, when the right thing to do is to heed them, heed them and then decide like, yes, I, I hear this emotion, but I'm not going to sort of give into it uh, right now. And for myself, a lot of that comes from journaling. Um, so I journal more or less every day, um, ideally in the evening, but I realized I was much more consistent about it when I gave myself the leeway to also journal about my day the following morning, write out whatever is occupying my mind and, and giving me um, these emotions. And I try to, uh, to tease apart, you know, what, uh, what events led to these emotions and maybe what do these emotions mean? Um, uh, am I feeling happy about something because I'm doing good work and it's something I'm proud of? Or am I feeling happy about something because I succeeded where somebody else failed and, and I'm feeling this sort of more base emotion? Uh, the way I deal with it is I, I use my reflection through journaling as like a kind of check on those emotions. But the emotions that, that are rather, but, but there are emotions that give me a tremendous amount of motivation and productivity, um, mostly around sort of the joy of creation, the joy of uh, connecting with other humans and sort of uh, feeling proud and, and good about um, helping other people and, and sort of contributing to society. So I think if, if one can be really aware about what their emotions are telling them and, and how their emotions can be, uh, can, can bring them in directions that, that they want to go, um, then, then I think it's really worth sort of holding on to those emotions really tightly and, and, and letting them carry you along. Totally. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the specific, you know, sort of models or not quite life hacks or, or philosophy. <laughs> sure. so what, what you have is uh, look the other way. Can you talk about that? Oh man, this one uh, served me so well. So there's this old, um, this old essay from Paul Graham where he talks about programming languages and he talks about how there are more and less powerful programming languages. And, and he points out that like, it's really hard to imagine more powerful programming languages, but it's really easy to look down at, um, at less powerful programming languages kind of, kind of uh, laugh at the people who would be trapped in such a, such a less powerful programming language. So he, he points out that there's this, uh, this attribute to this continuum where it's really easy to look one direction, that is it's easy to look down on the less powerful languages, but it's really hard to look up and sort of imagine a more powerful programming language. And uh, I realized there's actually a lot of sort of continuums that have that same property, uh, where it's easy to look in one direction and hard to look the other. Most particularly sort of wealth and popularity and ability, um, those are three areas where it's super, super easy um, to look up at somebody who's richer than you or more popular than you or, or more skilled than you. And, and well, really, I guess this, this is the one we were talking about earlier, really feel jealous of them. Um, and that jealousy uh, tends to make you unhappy. <laughs> um, but if you, if you can sort of force yourself to twist around and, and imagine the other direction and look the other way, you can, you can realize, like, oh, wow, there's actually, um, you know, I'm actually, probably most of us listening, uh, who are going to be listening to the podcast, I'm actually uh, really wealthy. You know, I'm, I'm comfortable. I have never had to deal with going to bed hungry. You know, I have friends. I, I am uh, pretty skilled. And in those, in those three in particular, it's like a really powerful tool for gratitude and 
sort of when you're feeling like, uh, you know, when you're feeling insecure, like just sort of twisting it around and, and acknowledging like how much you actually have. But also there are times when like, or, but also uh, looking the other way can be a really powerful tool for uh, generating new ideas. So it's anytime you're criticizing existing existing systems, you know, it's so easy to criticize whether it's the government or, you know, some, some software you're using or, or even your friends trying to look into the way in that direction can say, okay, I'm, I, yes, I can spend a lot of time criticizing these things, but instead I'm going to try to uh, think of like the positive version of like, if I were to, to develop on them, uh, what would I develop? For me, a big one uh, is, uh, is looking uh, positively on uh, things that uh, didn't turn out so well. It's, it's anytime I find myself getting into a loop of uh, self-criticism, it's, I, I use this to like force myself to spend a little bit of time thinking about what's actually, um, what actually went well um, and kind of being more realistic. How about the concept of an anticipation journal? And it's a contrast in some sense with a gratitude journal. Talk a little bit about that. So last, uh, I think last year I was, uh, I was going through a bout of depression basically. And uh, so I was, I was searching for ways to like be more happy. Uh, and if you search the internet for this, um, what everyone says is you should have a gratitude journal. You should, um, you know, write down 10 things that you're, that you're grateful for. So I was like, okay, great. I'll do this. I, you know, I'd heard of uh, gratitude journal before I tried it and I found it trivially easy, maybe because I had been sort of practicing my look the other way idea. Um, I found it trivially easy to be grateful. And yet like it didn't, didn't make me more happy. Um, and so then in a, in sort of a meta application of looking the other way, I thought, well, what if instead of looking to the past for things I'm grateful for, what if I looked for the future for things I, um, for things that are, uh, that haven't occurred yet? This is somewhat embarrassing to say, but it took me three hours to come up with 10 things that I was looking forward to in the future, which is, uh, you know, maybe a, maybe a marker that something was quite wrong. But I think the usefulness of either a gratitude journal or, or an anticipation journal is to sort of, is just practice. You get good at what you do a lot of. And so if you just practice thinking of things that you're grateful for or things you're looking forward to, then you get better at it. And then, uh, and you form a habit of, you know, thinking positively either about the past or about the future. It's, it's, it's funny. Uh, when I was growing up, I always used to, you know, when I was a kid, I used to tell my mom, Oh, I'm so excited for tomorrow. I'm so excited for tomorrow or so excited, you know, for this upcoming thing. And my mom would say, what about today? <laughs> what about, what about right now? It's interesting. Yeah. There's that great bit in star Wars where, um, where Yoda says, you know what? I've been looking, I'm not going to use Yoda's syntax, but he's like, I've been looking at Luke for a long time and he is always looking toward the horizon, never toward the present where he is right now. And I do think, you know, this, <laughs> it is also necessary to be present. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I have this sort of potentially fringe view, which is, I think we have sort of a, when we talk about the present, we sort of judge like the here and now, like there's sort of a tyranny of proximity a little bit, like be present sort of means like there's someone else in the room, pay attention to them. But there's also like, people on Twitter, <laughs> like there's a lot of light that's outside of the room right now. And why is that any less present? Does that mean then like the proc proximate? Uh, yeah. Like proximity or like, um, this is like the root of like saliency bias, right? Yeah. Or like, yeah. How, how come when someone is on their phone talking to someone on Twitter or text, that is less pre like, are they, be they're being fully present with that person 
versus you, you I, f- I feel like we have these biases towards towards like the real world basically <laughs> and maybe we should or the real like the the the, the world in 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 your immediate proximity do you, do you have thoughts yeah. um yeah like there's one very good reason uh to be present and that is that sort of the stuff that's proximate to you by definition of being proximate to you that's the stuff that you can affect the most you know if you're if you're uh, alone in a room with someone by then, then you're the only person who can be talking in the room with them and so there's, i guess there's some sort of comparative advantage there not if you're big on twitter that's true <laughs> that's true so i also uh, i'm also a huge fan of the long now foundation um which i don't know if you're familiar with but basically um their whole thing is to encourage uh, longer term thinking so they're building this clock that's uh supposed to run for 10,000 years um, and they, they hold seminars to try to encourage people to think longer term. I guess to some extent, I think it comes down to that uh, slogan of like, think globally, uh, act locally. Um, and, you know, if you are being on Twitter or if you're, if you have some other faculty that, that allows your, your sort of uh, present to be somehow bigger or wider in scope, then maybe that's like the right thing to do. There's a great bit in Marcus Aurelius's meditations where he says, like, you know, when you're a, you know, you're going to want to do these big things and you're, you're like, a, you're like a little fire. Your passion is like a little fire and you want to do these big things, like burn these big logs, but you like can't burn the big logs yet. If, if a little fire encounters a big log, it's going to be snuffed out by the log. What you have to do is like start with like this, the small, start with a small fire and then progressively burn bigger branches until one day you're like a big fire and you can burn that big log. And I guess when I, when I talk to uh, older friends uh, who are more accomplished and they, they end up in these positions where they're like on invite on like a dozen advisory boards, like they'll swoop in and drop their nugget of wisdom and then swoop over to somewhere else. Like maybe when you get to that place, like it, like being a little less present is the correct thing to do. And maybe, uh, maybe when, when you're in your little fire stage of life and all you can do is, you know, directly what you can do in the room or on your laptop or with the person you're talking to. Maybe that's when being present is more important. Talk a little bit about acting on curiosity and why it's important to aggressively do so and what that looks like. Uh, yeah. So curiosity is one we talk about the role of emotions and, uh, and whether how much to like pay attention to them versus like try to overcome them. Uh, curiosity is one of the emotions that, that at least for myself really when I listen to it, really produces uh, big benefits. Usually when I'm curious about something, uh, that indicates that there's some that I've identified, that, that sort of subconsciously I've identified some, uh, some gap in my knowledge that I like, would like to understand more. I started just really aggressively, like if I'm curious about something, um, uh, look it up. And if I can't, um, if I don't find answers quickly, like try to find a book that can, uh, that can satisfy me. And one of the outcomes of that is that like I end up starting a lot of books. So I have like a pile of 10 books um, on my bedside that I'm like quote unquote currently reading. Um, I end up like in, in, the, uh, in the morning or evening when I'm reading, I end up just picking up whichever one sort of speaks to me in that moment, whichever one maybe I've been thinking about that day. Um, so like I'm sure right now I have um, I have like Kierkegaard and Martin Gurry and um, something about finance and technology. And like at the end of the day, I might find that I'm 
that I'm really in the mood to, to, to learn about like how financing has impacted technology, or maybe I'm really in an introspective mood and I like want to read character. And I found that in, when I'm in the mood where, I, where I'm seeking knowledge for a certain thing, I'm much more able to digest that knowledge. Uh, I'm much more able to integrate it sort of with whatever else I'm thinking. So it's very much about like going with, going with the flow of where my brain is at, at a particular moment um, in order to like maximize what I can get from a book. If you, if you look online for advice about reading, um, uh, a bunch of people, including Naval and Patrick Collison, talk about like, just stop reading books that are boring to you. Um, and they're totally right. I think for a lot of sort of nerds, maybe you've played up, who've grown up playing video games, there's a desire to like finish the book before going on to the next one. Uh, but if you're reading a book that's boring to you, your mind's not going to be good at absorbing it. You're going to be less inclined to read, to continue reading. Um, in How to Read a Book, again, my Adler, uh, he has this whole perspective that like books exist to serve you. <laughs> you, you don't exist to serve books. Like there's, no, there's nothing morally good about, um, about serving the book by like reading it to the end. But there is something good about reading the book that has what you need at this moment. Uh, so that you can learn from it. No pressure to talk about this at all. And, and so one aspect of privacy is relates to your own situation, but I'm curious if, if you learn anything or you have any insights of what you think causes depression for people, like what is depression? I think depression is one of uh, emotions that sort of are important to listen to. I think it is a sort of a signal that it's, it's, the, it's like the most acute way of your, of your sort of, intuitive subconscious system to tell you that like something is wrong with your life. I'm not like a psychologist or psychiatrist. I, I trust that, uh, that there, there are some sort of purely chemical or maybe genetic causes of depression. I don't think they're what I was dealing with. I'm certain that there are many causes of depression, but the one that I think I'm most familiar with is, uh, is I think closely related, related to burnout. There's this idea that burnout comes from, just like working too hard or working too much. And uh, I actually don't think that I've, I've put in like a lot of hours working really hard on some things. Um, they did not lead to burnout. And the reason they didn't lead to burnout was because they led to, they were, they had outcomes that I really liked. I felt good about it. I was proud that I worked on them. Um, and I was pleased with my work. I think burnout comes when you're, when you keep working on something, you put a lot of time into work and that work doesn't lead to any, any good outcomes doesn't lead to like sort of what was expected. Um, so I think if you're working on things that you're proud of and are going well, it probably usually doesn't lead to burnout. It's when you're working on, on something a ton and it's not going anywhere that it leads to what we would call burnout. Um, and at least in my cases, um, uh, when I was in uh, response to my life, depression was maybe like the next level on top of that, like the next level of burnout maybe uh, where it was like, had these lofty goals or, or high expectations, worked on them really hard and they didn't get anywhere. And I didn't really have like a plan um, for like what to do differently or how to get out of them. Can you talk about shrinking, uh, shrinking the quantum of experience? I, I think this was one of the ideas I was most intrigued by. Yeah. So this gets back to like how to, how to read in the most effective way. So the quantum is like, it's like the, it's like the, the lowest measurable unit, right? I try to make, the units of my experiences be as small as possible. So I get the highest resolution on things. So instead of reading a book, just read the Wikipedia article. 
instead of eating like a whole cup of ice cream, eat like a spoonful of ice cream. And that's a bunch of like good effects. One is that you have uh, less turnaround time. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're curious about a thing, you don't have to hold it in your head and remember it until you get a book. Uh, you can just look it up on your phone immediately. And so that like reduces procrastination. Um, and, uh, but then the other effect is that once you've had the like small quantum, once you've read the Wikipedia article or eaten your spoonful of ice cream, you can decide if you want more. <laughs> you can decide that like, you know what, this is the thing that I, I really want to like dig deep and read not just one, but maybe 10 books about this. Or maybe you say, you know what, like I was really craving ice cream and that spoonful really hit the spot and I no longer require more. Um, I, I had a, a roommate of mine who, who really understood the, uh, sort of what my desires were for, uh, for, for eating. And so he would, so my roommate would cook his dinner and I'd always be like really curious, like, oh man, this is, my roommate comes from maybe like a different cultural background than me. Like what is, what is the stuff he's eating? Uh, and so I always ask him for like one spoonful of whatever he was eating, right? Like I didn't, I didn't want him to be like cooking a meal for me. Uh, I was just curious. And he like really embraced that. I was like, yeah, here, okay, here, here's your spoonful. And I, now I will eat the rest of it. <laughs> and when I, when I realized that, you know, he was cooking these meals and I, and I really only just wanted the novelty of trying it, I realized like I could apply that to not just knowledge, like looking things up, but also like, uh, like experiences, like maybe, or like experiences in general, like maybe I want to go to a party, but I really only need to stick around for something as, as little as like 15 minutes, or maybe, maybe I'm in the mood to like watch some like dumb action movie, but really all I need to do is like watch like the one fight scene in the middle. And so it, uh, I think the, the, the trap when you start thinking about doing big things, I certainly have this tendency to, to start making grand plans. Like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, maybe I'm gonna take a whole like online course about, about this topic that I'm curious about. And really, like at that point, you don't, at the beginning, you don't really know how much you want. It's only by actually going ahead and experiencing it that you know whether you want more of that experience or not. So treating the quantum of experience both lets me satisfy those, those desires and interests uh, more quickly and also lets me really really know whether I want to go deeper. Yeah. The example that comes to mind for me is, you know, is tasting uh, ice cream instead of, uh, or getting the sample instead of buying a whole one. <laughs> yeah. The sample typically solves it. It's, it's, it's a more elegant way of saying like lean, you know, MVP things sooner. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think MVP is like the, the, the specific sort of entrepreneurial version of it uh, or product development version of it. rather. When do you, when not shrinking, I guess, or like what's worth having the whole thing? It's definitely possible to back out too early. So one is like some forms of, some forms of learning. Um, So so really the the general case for things that you shouldn't try to shrink, uh, to shrink your experience is things where where you actually can't, uh, where actually the experience itself is larger. It comes of a certain size and it's actually impossible to shrink it. One that I think of is that I have, I have some friends who have had, um, shall we say, difficult dating lives. And when I talk to them, it, uh, it sounds like really there's like a, it's basically like a fear of commitment. And like, as far as I can tell, and this is mostly here, I'm mostly channeling stuff that my parents and older family members have told me, like a, like a really good marriage basically takes an entire life. 
like you can't experience what like a marriage would be like after like one date, right? And so, uh, and so there are some things that require patience and commitment. A lot of things, there's a lot of uh, skills, like learning languages um, that are just like very large tasks. And, uh, and basically for these, I just rely on the sort of wisdom of others, um, you know, other people who've learned languages or other people who've um, had, had great uh, relationships and great marriages, other people who've, uh, who've built great products. Um, I basically have to just have to rely on, on them saying like, yeah, look, you got to push through this phase because you can't shrink it smaller than that. How about the concept of recognizing genres of conversation? Yeah, so this actually came about when I had a, I had a roommate who, it's like a Saturday morning or something, and he, he comes out with this startup idea, and he's like, oh, you guys have been thinking about this thing. I don't even remember what it was anymore. But the other roommate and I, we patiently listened to his idea, and then we like immediately tore into it. You know, like it won't work because of this. You'll never be able to get users because of that. Uh, you know, people won't actually want this in the first place. It'll be hard to market. All whatever. Lots of criticism. And uh, and he basically, you know, hung his head and walked away and and felt bad about it. And we felt bad about making him feel bad. Uh, and then reflecting on that, I realized in that moment he wasn't he wasn't looking for criticism. Um, what he was looking for was for uh, for us to kind of share in his excitement and ask if, if there was something there, rather, he wasn't asking if there was something there that could be criticized. He was asking if there was something there that we could get excited about, which it turns out actually there was. Um, and then uh, I was able to go back and, and be excited about it with him. Once I had that uh, model in my head, then I, I started realizing like, oh, there's, there's like a lot of other genres of conversation where people are really uh, seeking a certain kind of interaction. A really common one is sort of commiseration, right? Like sometimes you just want to sulk about how bad something is together with somebody else who uh, understands it. Sometimes people want encouragement or affirmation. Uh, so like as a, as a somewhat antisocial nerd, like recognizing this actually made me much, much better at like being a good friend uh, to the people around me. Uh, I, could, I could recognize like, oh, right now this person is looking for this kind of conversation. Great. I can give them that. I can give them I can give them affirmation or I can give them commiseration. I'm really inspired by um, I think it's RSA encryption. I'm not sure. Like the three letters of the acronym come from the you know what I don't think it's RSA. Anyways, there was a group of three mathematicians who worked on who worked on public key encryption, and one of them actually didn't come up with any original ideas. The other two came up with all the ideas, and this third guy he would just criticize all the ideas and tear them apart. Um, and they worked in this very modal fashion where they, these two would go off, come up with new ideas. Um, and then they would bring those new ideas. The third guy who then, if they if he could tear them apart, he would. And it was by working in that fashion that they eventually invented public key encryption. But like those two guys who were making new ideas wouldn't have been able to do so if criticism guy had been in the room with them while they were brainstorming. And so like hearing that story about how they worked really solidified to me the importance of like knowing what what genre of conversation or working in general um somebody's looking for and what, what somebody might really need in the moment what about you alluded to a little bit earlier but talk more about modeling social needs like like nutrition <laughs> yeah um, are like paleo diets and like how, how do we think about like so um i'll tell a story that gives some context um when i first moved to san francisco first started working 
I thought, you know what, like, I am just going to, like, I'm in this new city and I don't have any friends here, but you know what, that's okay. I'm just going to spend all my time, like, working and learning and, like, improving myself and producing useful stuff. Um, and so I spent three weeks with basically zero socializing. Like, the only socializing I did was to, like, uh, say hi to my coworkers and whatever sort of meetings in, at work. And that was like a like the first maybe week of that was pretty productive, but at the end of the third week, I felt this incredible loneliness, and it was like it was like an acutely painful loneliness, <laughs> uh, like like almost almost like being stabbed or something. Not that I've ever been stabbed, but like something incredibly unique that I never felt before. And then in that moment, I thought, well, I'm. It turns out I actually do have needs. <laughs> I actually do have social needs, and uh, I'm never going to let this happen again. I'm going to be very aware of what my social needs are. So I started actually trying to figure out what those needs were. In the same way that, like, if you started doing some weird diet, you might find that you had a craving for, like, if you if you if you went on like a vegan diet, you might find that you had a craving for not eggs, but you might have a craving for eggs, and you might deduce from that that what you needed was protein, and so you might eat more nuts. And, uh, and so I started realizing that like, oh, like I basically need two or three times a week. I need to have like a, like a close one-on-one conversation with a close friend and like roughly once a week, I need uh, some like more, more group setting. And like once every two months, I need some kind of like party-like environment where I'm like meeting new people and, and being exposed to like totally, totally new and different um, people and ideas. And so, like, just recognizing that in general, uh, I need different kinds of social interaction at, at varying frequencies. Let's um, me kind of plan around that in the same way that, like, you can plan your diet and eat healthy. Um, and lets me really know that, like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, if I want to be happy, these are the, these are the kinds of social interactions um, that I can have. You've, uh, you've thought a bit about being a contrarian uh, and, and what that means. Why don't you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Contrarianism is a idea that's sort of bandied about around Silicon Valley. Peter Thiel, of course, famously embraces contrarianism. I had this interesting experience with contrarianism where I, I, I got together a bunch of my super contrarian friends. And I thought, I'm going to put all these super contrarian, super argumentative nerds in one room. And, like, and so I'm going to or- organize this contrarian dinner. I'm just going to see what happens. Like what is, are they gonna, is it going to explode in some like terrible argument? Like, what's going to happen? It turns out these like mostly techie contrarians mostly agree on most subjects. <laughs> they're contrarian with like the rest of the world, but in fact, the way in which they're contrarian actually is pretty similar to one another. And so they ended up all agreeing. Um, and uh, it was actually one of their girlfriends, who's like a punk artist, who was like suspicious of power and money and such. Um, she was actually the most contrarian person at the, at the dinner. I think the right way to understand contrarianism is that it's high risk and high reward. So when Thiel is investing, it makes sense for him to be contrarian because actually since he has like a you know portfolio, um, it's actually lower risk because he's diversified across the portfolio. Um, and so he can still reap the high reward. Um, it also makes sense if you're uh, making a big bet um, and like you have, there's like something you really believe in that you really that you feel like you understand that the rest of the world doesn't, I guess that's like the, like Peter Thiel's notion of secrets, right? But in other things, it doesn't make sense to be contrarian. It doesn't make sense to be contrarian about like 
like minor things like uh, it doesn't make sense to be contrarian about like how long your stride length is going to be or what side of the street to walk on or like what kind of water to drink unless of course you have a good you feel like you have a good reason for that in which case you totally should contradict me <laughs> but i think i think some of the difficulty with contrarianism is that um, it's related to cynicism in that it seduces smart people uh, because when you're contrarianism or when you're when you're contrarian or when you're cynical uh, you basically get to go around telling other people they're wrong all the time. And like, if you're, if you're like a reasonably smart person, you can probably come up with um, decent arguments about why things are wrong. Like there, there exist counter arguments for most things, whether they're, whether they're good or not. And so I think it's really satisfying to a lot of, uh, to a lot of smart people to, to be contrarian or to be cynical because they, they get to go around refuting everyone. Uh, but I don't think it's, productive to be sort of unilaterally contrarian about everything. Being, being contrarian for me uh, has been a balancing force um, to be sort of more of a, I really like being a generalist. And so like, and so whatever environment I'm in, I kind of uh, take the I kind of have a tendency to take the opposite tack. So in school, I wanted to, um, you know, I, I wanted to be focused on programming all the time. So like, I hated English class. But then when I got to Silicon Valley and all, I was coding all the time and I was surrounded by other people who, uh, who, who also had hated their English classes in school, um, suddenly I, uh, I decided to start a book club where we were having these discussions that were basically, you know, English literature discussions. And so contrarianism like that can, can be like a balancing course um, for myself. For me, I sort of differentiate between, you know, being a contrarian and being a troll sometimes. And, and see troll is yeah. trying to get a rise out of people. And sometimes, rarely, but sometimes I find, I'm like, am I being a troll? <laughs> am, I, am I thinking that I'm being contrarian, but I'm actually sort of, I don't know, trying to get a rise out of people, but or trying to shake things up? Or what, what is sort of the philosophy or motivations behind it? Like, why would one enjoy getting a rise out of someone, you think? Oh, man, I've thought about this a lot. I think there is a very pure... Sorry, not, not pure in like a good way, but a sort of, I think there is a very unalloyed pleasure that some people get sometimes from just being a troll and just getting a rise out of someone. It's kind of like, um, you know, like a toddler who like knocks over, knocks over a block tower just to show that, just to show that he has some kind of agency over the world. I think there is a certain amount of trolling that, that is just not productive in any external sense but just making people feel good about having some agency for myself. I found that uh, there's actually a third, a third in between things. There's like contrarianism where it's like, look, I'm trying to take another position and I, and I want to let you know that this is another position. And then there's, so it's like on one side and on the other side, other extreme, there's like pure trolling just to get a rise out of someone. And then in the middle, um, sometimes I find that I being a little bit of a troll but when I reflect on it a little, a little more deeply, I find that really what it is is there's something contradiction or there's something that's being swept under the rug or being glossed over um, or being ignored. And I'm trying to call attention to that without really knowing the full sort of counter argument. I'm still working on figuring out what the right way to bring that up is. <laughs> but I, I, think it, I think it is useful to pay, pay very close attention myself at least it's very useful to pay very close attention when i'm either being contrarian or kind of being a troll and trying to tease out like 
why is it that I'm doing this? Is, is there actually like a deep-seated concern that I have that maybe I can bring to light? Is there like an elephant in the room that I, that I want to discuss um, that maybe I can more directly discuss? Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about epistemology? And, and it's something you, you think quite a bit about. <laughs> yeah. When, when a lot of people are kids there's sort of the traditional like monster under the bed and that's like the fear that a lot of kids have presumably when a lot of people get older a lot of people's uh fear turns to like existential fears like does my life have any meaning or whatever um, i've never felt existential fears in those ways i do feel epistemological fears <laughs> um i do get really concerned about like is what is knowable and 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 what can i know and to what degree am I certain about this knowledge? Um, uh, and a lot of this came from, um, uh, I worked at Twitter for several years uh, doing A-B tests. And, uh, and so we were, you know, we were doing very practical, concrete, real world experiments and like learning from the experiments. And so I, uh, so I ended up, that led me to reading Karl Popper, who uh, basically, formalized the modern scientific method. So like in, in school, when, you, uh, when you're taught about sort of like falsifiable hypotheses um, and like and then doing experiments to try to falsify um, a hypothesis, that all comes from Karl Popper. Um, and like, and like he lived like in the past century, like it's incredibly recent. Um, Popper had this, uh, this insight and in that he recognized an idea that a lot of people have. Uh, and he called this idea the doctrine of manifest truth. Um, and the doctrine of manifest truth is the idea that uh, if, you, or if you see something that's true, you can recognize it for truth. You can recognize it for what it is. I think that's, a, that's an intuitive thing. A lot of people think like, oh, if there was nothing sort of impeding the truth, if you could see things for what they were, then you, you'd easily be able to tell what's true and what's false. And so he points out that like the word discover uh, or the word discover comes from like discover, like where you're uncovering whatever it is that's hiding the truth in order to make the truth plainly visible. And Popper points out that like a corollary to the manifest, uh, the doctrine of manifest truth is that uh, if you are ignorant about something, that ignorance has to come from some evil force or some evil conspiracy that's trying to cover up the knowledge or hide the knowledge, keep it from you. But Popper's, Basically, uh, Popper's alternative idea um, is that attaining knowledge is really just hard. It's hard to actually know something with any kind of certainty. And that thought is what led him to sort of formalize the scientific method. You can, uh, if uh, listeners are interested, you can look up, I think Gwern has a good essay about how um, the knowledge that like lemons prevented uh, scurvy was actually attained the British Navy started supplying lemons on all ships. And so scurvy was basically no longer a problem. Uh, but because they actually they actually used the word lime and they didn't differentiate between what we would call lemons, yellow limes, that would actually had sufficient vitamin C and uh, what we would call limes, the green ones that actually don't have sufficient vitamin C to prevent scurvy, they actually started supplying ships with the green limes and then scurvy became a problem again. Uh, so it's actually the case that like knowledge is hard to find. And then once it's found, it's even easily lost. So trying to think about like what we can really know is maybe something of an obsession of mine. I had the 
privilege in, uh, when I was a teenager of uh, talking to this guy, uh, David Baltimore, um, who uh, discovered reverse transcriptase, uh, which is kind of how AIDS work or uh, how HIV works. And he had this way of putting it. He said that um, the frontier of knowledge is near. You know, when you're in school, you read everything in textbooks. And of course, textbooks only talk about what you already know. And so they bias you into thinking like, oh, there's all this stuff that we already know. And probably what we don't know is very small. Uh, but in fact, like what we don't know is uh, far outweighs what we do know. And if you're willing to kind of strike out a little bit and, uh, and do some experiments or, or try to do something new or unique, um, it actually doesn't take long to, to end up in sort of undiscovered territory um, and where, where basically just humanity hasn't discovered it yet. What do you think about the idea that the scientific method, while amazing for, for many things, many types of knowledge, is sort of incomprehensive or, or sometimes uh, not necessarily destructive, but sometimes uh, not helpful or actively unhelpful when thinking about sort of certain emotional or moral truths? Uh, yeah, so I actually totally agree with that. Um, Popper himself, actually, he had, a, uh, he had a, uh, an interview uh, that he required to be published only posthumously. Um, and in this interview, he, uh, he admits to being, a, uh, he admits to being agnostic and, uh, and he kind of, in that interview, he kind of points out like, look, like we just don't know. Um, so I think there's real limitations, um, uh, to what, what we can learn through science. And actually that's, that was another of, or that was one of Popper's motivations was to find, was to solve what he called the problem of demarcation, which is like, what is science and what isn't? Uh, so of course, there's been plenty written about like how science uh, relates to like morality or like uh, or that that kind of genre of truth. One of the other cases that Popper wrote about, though, is uh, has this great essay called um, "On the Status of Metaphysics," where he basically mentions like like while science is good at growing knowledge and and testing hypotheses it actually just looking at data is not a sufficient uh source of new ideas for new hypotheses you need something else uh to kind of power and generate those new ideas they have some kind of creative creative juice uh and he takes the example of uh of newton uh who you know newton posited like universal gravitation his whole you know, it's, he's saying, look, it's not just like the earth that pulls things forward. It's like actually every body in the universe like uh, exerts gravity. And, and his contemporaries immediately like laughed at him and said, look, look, that's ridiculous. The stars are not pulling on us here on the earth. You only think that, Mr. Crazy Man Newton, because you believe in astrology. Popper basically embraces that idea. He says like, yeah. Newton was only able uh, to conceive of universal gravitation and action at a distance because he also held the idea of astrology, you know, in his head. A, a lot of people, when they think about Newton, think about him in terms of like, okay, he did like his cool stuff with like optics and like physics and calculus. Uh, and then on the side, he was also crazy and did these like this, like alchemy and astrology and this stuff a common way of thinking about Newton is to think like, oh, he succeeded at physics uh, in spite of his beliefs about astrology. But I actually think that uh, he was only able to succeed in physics, not in spite of, but because of his, uh, his beliefs in astrology and alchemy and whatnot. It's only because he, he had these other ideas kind of bubbling around in his brain that it, uh, that it enabled him to 
sort of break the mold and think of these new ideas. And so, you know, touching on contrarianism again, like that's, um, that's another way in which having these different ideas uh, can really be useful. Uh, but ultimately that's a, looking at that case study in Newton kind of shows us that like sort of just the scientific method on its own isn't enough to really power creativity and like, and like new ideas. How about thinking about your, your mood uh, and how you should sort of adjust to it? And then maybe you can get into your happiness generally. So I think I like a lot of, like a lot of sort of my peers um, like to think of myself as this like discipline machine and like, Oh, I can, I can do, I'll like block out time and I'll do these things uh, at certain times. And I think, you know, many people can do that, but I've discovered um, in the past year or so actually at different times I'm in, a, I'm in different moods wanting to do different things. And so uh, in the mornings, for instance, I'm, I'm like much more sort of creative and free, free thinking and, uh, and in the afternoons are where I'm uh, actually much better at sort of getting down to like grinding through, um, grinding through maybe less expensive thoughts. So basically I, I realized that um, I, I observed by sort of shuffling the times at which I was working on different things. Um, I observed that if like the first thing in the morning, I like spend some time uh, reading and, uh, and sort of reflecting on what I'm reading. Um, and then after... After about an hour of that, um, then I sort of transition into a mood for uh, where I'm good at doing creative work. Um, and then when I get to the afternoon, I'm a little bit better at like more grindy work, like you know, debugging or um, or filling out lists of requirements or something. Uh, and just by by observing those, I I think it it makes me both happier and more productive, which is like a like a win win. <laughs> You had some uh, something here about observing your own revealed preference. So, a question I sometimes ask is, "Hey, if I really wanted to be doing something, I would already be doing it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's an easy way to sort of convince yourself of like that, you know, not to exercise or, or, or not doing hard things that you, you yeah. want to have done, <laughs> but are hard. Right. To start. Yeah, revealed preference. I think is a is a fickle thing. There are sometimes when it can actually lead you to, uh, to realizations that, that align with sort of what you want to want. Right. So, uh, uh, so at some point I realized that like I had been eating ice cream in the afternoon every, uh, every day, but then like one day, I don't even know why, but I ended up getting some, getting a cup of water instead. And I realized like, Oh, after I, after I got this cup of water, I actually don't, want the ice cream anymore <laughs> and so uh, by that totally random event i realized that for ice cream was actually a desire for something cold and refreshing and water did the trick and as long as i was you know counting nutrition and calories i'd rather drink a glass of water than <laughs> than eat a cup of ice cream so i think somebody um somebody on twitter a- asked about um a real preference and that's kind of i think that i think real preference is one of the things that um many but not all sort of people around Silicon Valley are more aware of than sort of the general population, but it's got like the, it's like the difference between the things that you, um, that you end up doing versus the things that you kind of say that you want to do. And another way to think of that is kind of, uh, I phrased it a minute ago, the stuff that you, that you want to do versus the stuff you want to want to do. 
right? Um, kind of like you pointed out, exercise. Like I want to want to, you know, hit the gym every morning and then go on a 10 mile run and then, uh, you know, and every day like uh, practice some foreign language for two hours or something. But if I actually try to do those, I become like pretty quickly pretty unhappy. <laughs> and so it's, uh, there's a lot you can get out of uh, doing things, trying things and trying different things and really paying attention to, uh, to how satisfying they are. After you do them, do you, do you still have a desire to do some other thing or has, has that satisfied whatever desire you had? And it's sort of an inverse of that is actually one revealed preference you can see is the stuff you procrastinate on. So I like hiking and I like backpacking and I don't do it that much. And the reason I don't is because I actually really hate um, planning hiking trips. <laughs> and, uh, and I can observe that by, uh, by noting that I keep procrastinating on it. I keep doing other things instead. So, so both by observing the things that are satisfying and by observing the things you um, uh, procrastinate on and keep putting off, you can figure out what like really makes you happy in the moment um, and distinguish between the things that you, that you actually want versus the things that you merely think you want. Uh, one thing I note is that like among my friends who were like really academically successful, um, like straight A's all through college and grad school, um, um, that sort of thing, they seem to be really good at ignoring the emotions around their activities and really good at like doing what, kind of what they're expected to do, uh, which is, you know, obviously really useful. Uh, but also for me, recognizing the things that I actually want to do and then, and then capitalizing on them and, and doing them yields a lot of happiness for me. And that's how I end up working on the things that I work on and reading the things that I, that I read. And I have a few friends who, um, who, because they are so capable of sort of cutting off their personal inclinations for what they, what they want and what they enjoy and such, um, it actually, they're, they have a lot of trouble uh, figuring out what they actually want. Um, and sort of once they, once they end up doing sort of making a default move in terms of like just climbing the career ladder or whatever, um, it seems quite difficult to overcome that and perceive um, and perceive what you actually want and what you actually enjoy doing. Uh, but for me, that's been tremendously uh, rewarding and yielded a lot of happiness. Yeah, makes sense. What about, let's talk about free speech a little bit. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts there? So free speech is fascinating because, uh, to me, it's fascinating because it's a thing that I, in school growing up, you know, growing up in the American education system, it was like a, it was almost like religiously, like, yes, free speech is good. And in the wake of sort of the last several years of global populism and such, there are many people who say, and like fake news and whatever, and many people who start decrying freedom of speech and saying, you know, freedom of speech is bad. And a lot of that comes from observing, uh, observing sort of trolls on Twitter um, and on the internet, um, making basically uh, making trouble for people. Um, and, and the reason they're able to make trouble for people is that they, these online trolls evidently have a ton of time that they can spend uh, uh, arguing with people the sort of uh, classical liberal conception of free speech seems to come from an era where, you know, it was, uh, you know, some, some small elite writing op-eds in the newspapers or pa- passing around pamphlets or sending letters to the, uh, to the, uh, the intellectuals in Europe and like arguing within a, 
within a small group. But it seems like the nature of that has changed in this world where anybody can kind of, if you have like an online presence, anybody can argue with you at any time. Uh, so a lot of people frame the criticism of free speech as saying like, look, there are these people, they have some bad opinion that I disagree with. They're anti-vaxxers. And so the problem is that anti-vaxxers exist. And so they should not be, they should not be allowed basically to, to speak this idea. And the classical liberal counter argument to that is to say like, no, 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 no. Yeah, that idea might be bad, but if it's truly bad, you can argue with them. And then you can argue with them until, um, until the, the, you know, the truth kind of wins the day. The difficulty is that these people who have, there are people who have infinite time to argue, um, whereas like you and I do not have infinite time to argue. We're also like trying to, you know, solve problems and get things done. <laughs> and, uh, and the people who are, uh, and, and I think the people who have a lot of time to argue by a corollary is that they, they're, they don't have something else that's, that they're trying to get done with their life. And so I think they probably tend to have bad ideas. Uh, I'm reminded of how, uh, how we dealt with, how to a certain degree we dealt with spam at Twitter. Um, if, you, if you try to uh, sign up for Twitter today, it'll prompt you for a phone number instead of an email. And the reason for that is economic. It's basically free to make an email account and it's you know, not free to get a SIM card. And so uh, economically then it becomes much harder if you require everybody to have a SIM card it was much, much, much harder for a, for a spammer to, you know, try to sign up with 10,000 spam accounts. And so one way to, dis, uh, to dissuade such bad behavior is to, like, make it more expensive. And, like, the problem is that arguing bad ideas um, and sucking up people's time with it basically is free. Um, and so, like, maybe there's some way that we as a society can, as the, in the future, make it, for instance, more expensive to... Um, more expensive to argue with strangers online so that people would only do it if they if it really mattered. But ultimately that rests on sort of like the value of your time, which um, again, like the people who have better ideas, their, their time is very valuable. People who have bad ideas, their time is maybe not so valuable. Um, so it's really unclear how, how we're going to solve that. Yeah. It's interesting. There does like, when you think about the sort of free speech debates that are happening on campus today or about like, certain people not being tolerant of certain ideas. It's interesting for what, what a solution might look like. Like I have a friend um, who's pretty active on Twitter, uh, Maria Chong. And she told me one time, like, look, oh, so she's like an Asian American woman who pretty vocally comments on things online. And so of course, it basically attracts a lot of trolls online. And, uh, and she told me one time, like, you know, sometimes I have the time and like sort of the sort of the emotional capacity to to really hear them out, and so um, and so I'll take you know a morning and just try to really respond to everything a troll says and try to figure out like what's like what's like at the root of what they're saying, um, and like really listen to them, and uh, and usually you know it's kind of a somebody's sad and angry and frustrated, um, and if you're really patient and, and listen to them, you can kind of untangle that. Um, but like it just it just takes so much time and, and emotional energy to do that that I just can't do it all the time. And man, when I think about that, it just it just kills me. Like maybe maybe one day we'll be able to you know have like bots for good that do that kind of like ther- free therapy for strangers on the internet. Uh, but in the meantime, it's this very difficult problem. Like 
like time and attention for people. Yeah, some people recommended that if we had some version of micropayments where it costs you know X to you know leave a YouTube comment that you just get rid of trolling entirely. Who's going to pay to troll? Yeah, like the uh, the SDF, which is old Unix system here, they would give anybody a, um, a a shell account on their server, but it cost one dollar. You had to mail one dollar in the mail to them, and that was basically an effective deterrent. <laughs> so maybe yeah. Related to that idea, um, we, we, we sort of, it's easier to recognize problems than, than, than solutions. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Like there's this thought that like you should only complain about things if you have a, if you have a solution in mind. And like, while I understand where that comes from, I think basically like I can rec- I can't build, ch- I'm not a carpenter. I can't build chairs, but I do know enough about a chair to like know that it's like rickety or somehow insufficient <laughs> And so I don't think we should just reject out of hand complaints. And in fact, it can be useful if we're sort of aggregating complaints to get a better idea of like, well, what are the actual problems? I think um, uh, like a common, a common criticism of sort of the contemporary wave of populism, starting with like, uh, like Occupy Wall Street, um, and to a certain extent, the Tea Party was like, they didn't have a lot of like demands, um, they didn't have like good ideas for how things should be solved. Um, so that caused a lot of people to kind of ignore them and say, well, you know, if they don't have good ideas, try to improve things. And like, I'm not really going to listen to them. Uh, but in fact, like the, the problems they're experiencing were real problems and, uh, and ultimately ignoring those problems, uh, I think is culminated in, um, such things as, uh, the election of Donald Trump and Brexit, um, and sort of uh, unrest elsewhere in the world. So I think actually, I think it's actually worth really paying attention uh, to when people are saying they have a problem, but basically disregarding what they what they say they think is the solution. Um, it's it's worth really understanding what things they're complaining about, and then if you're in a position where you think you can solve it, um, actually trying to think rigorously about what you're uh, what you're gonna, the way in which you're going to solve it. We were just talking about um, free speech. The, there's this quote that, you, that you, you've been intrigued by, basically saying that some people think American football emerged an outlet for the first generation of uh, you know, American men who didn't fight in the war, and you wonder how much pr- uh, protesters in the last decade have been motivated by a similar desire to live up to their predecessors. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, so basically, like there were several generations of young American men starting with like, um, the American Revolution, and then like the War of 1812, and some other conflict I'm forgetting, but then ultimately then the Civil War. There were several successive wars where like each generation of sort of elite American men had participated in the military. And then we get to uh, sort of uh, the beginning of the, uh, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, like the early, early 1900s, um, and and suddenly like that has passed out of memory, and like there, there hasn't been a conflict for a while um, that where where young men could um, could feel they'd like proven their manliness, and then around that same time, football emerges. And in the beginning, there's no forward passes; it's just like a bunch of guys line up and then and then run into each other. <laughs> um, and if you read descriptions from the time, it seems like a very boring sport, but it was this way to uh, for like for like Harvard students to say like, oh, we we beat the Yale students or whatever. I kind of feel that, and this is so, 
So one explanation for the emergence of football was that it emerged to satisfy that desire. And I kind of feel like similarly people in kind of, um, and kind of my generation have grown up, you know, hearing about the civil rights movement and, uh, uh, and suffrage and everything, universal suffrage. And while our society doesn't place the same value on military service as it used to, I think our society today does really glorify those um, those protests and civil rights movements and and sort of human rights in general. And in the same way that um, those young men before wanted to live up to that somehow and then, and then maybe created football, and similarly, there are many people, um, young people today who want to be able to follow in that tradition of protest and want to be able to follow in that tradition of, of advocating and fighting for human rights. I had some, I had some peers in my high school when they were going, when we were all going off to college, they were so excited to go to Berkeley, um, which they saw as this like, this, this like ground zero for, uh, for civil liberties. Um, but if you go to Berkeley today, it's not like a bunch of hippies who are protesting. It's a bunch of like, really obedient students who like scored really highly on tests and are really good at doing what teachers tell them to do. And it doesn't have the, that, um, sort of, uh, revolutionary feel as it, as, as we imagine it, um, it did or it had. So it might be similar. It might be that a lot of, well, I, I just realized now I'm, I'm, this is something of a contradiction in myself to the extent that, uh, we might judge these protests as being kind of, about nothing, uh, maybe that is motivated by a similar, uh, by similar desire to uh, to just live up to this tradition. Uh, but just a minute ago, I said that when people have when people complain about things, they're probably identifying problems even if they don't really have real solutions. So maybe I uh, maybe I should iron out my inconsistency there and say like, you know, they're protesting something, and we should really pay attention to what they're protesting, even if they don't even really know what is at the root of it. Yeah, no, it's it's complicated. <laughs> um, you know, one thought that you've been sort of thinking about is that a lot of criticisms of society today, whether capitalism or office work, are actually trying to criticize industrialism and industrial culture. Uh, and maybe there's maybe the idea of central planning. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, this is trend, or it's like. I don't know if fashionable is the right word, but it's somewhat popular to uh, to criticize capitalism and say that capitalism has caused all these um, caused all these problems. Recently, I was uh, I was reading this very strange small book um, called Tools for Conviviality, and in this book, this guy actually um, uh, criticizes not capitalism but industrialism. Um, and so, one way to characterize industrialism is to say. Industrialism is this belief that like, like some one like man with a plan can solve everything. If only, if only everybody follows the plan, if they sort of uh, subjugate themselves to the system. And so from this, you get like metrics and process and lack of individual freedom. And like anytime people complain about being like a cog in the machine, like some kind of dehumanization, it actually all kind of stems from this industrial mindset, industrialist mindset. Um, uh, and that comes from the industrial revolution and it comes from sort of the science in the, uh, science in the modern era where, where there was all this stuff that could be achieved if only, you know, a um, hundred factory workers worked in this factory and did their job. But 
that has a bunch of uh, not so good side effects, which I think are often the things that people are actually thinking about uh, when they criticize capitalism. So anytime we're valuing some quantitative metric over like some qualitative human experience, whether at, whether that's sort of the mindless pursuit of money or like uh, trying to increase the GDP, right? People. Uh, so one criticism of the current system is that like, oh, the GDP may be increasing, but like the experience of being like a random person in rural Arkansas or wherever is actually not very good. Uh, and you can blame that on capitalism, but I come around to thinking that you, we should actually blame that on this uh, on this industrial mode of thinking that's all about you know maximizing these metrics of output. Again, in Tools for Conviviality, he talks about. Uh, how like the Soviet Union actually bought into the industrial mode of thinking. Like, yeah, they were like central planners and like um, and like communists, but uh, and like America was capitalist. But ultimately, America was competing in this like we're going to produce more stuff and have a higher GDP. And the Soviet Union like bought into that and, and started playing that same game. What that leads to is this is a society where we're we're like maximizing these metrics, but like individuals like don't feel so good. So I started thinking, like, what's the, what's the like, antithesis of that? Like, what would be the most extreme opposite of industrialism? It's like if you, if you had some system that could maximize individual freedom and individual creativity, this ties into what I was saying earlier about, um, about acting on your curiosity, right? Like an industrial mode of thought um, wants the individual to actually to not act on their own creativity, but instead just, like, do what they're told. Um, but if instead we maximize individual freedom, and if we if we uh, work towards improving the individual uh, the individual qualitative experience rather than any kind of qualitative metrics, um, and it also touch, it also leads to the the uh, being a generalist rather than a specialist, right? Like for the the reason specialization exists is because there's some plan that everybody's supposed to follow. Um, and if, and in that plan, then you end up, that naturally leads to specialization because we have, okay, these guys over here, they're working on task X and these guys over there are working on task Y. Um, uh, but we end up actually, that ends up actually suppressing creativity because uh, when you're working in, you know, the person at the top who's making the plan, they have some kind of creativity. And when you as an individual work in the generalist mold, you can have some kind of creativity because you see you're in an advantage where you can actually see the entire end end production and you can understand um, aspects of the problem and like how to improve it. Um, but when you specialize, you you end up being confined to a small problem area, um, which goes hand in hand with minimizing your own creativity and your own freedom. Um, it seems to me that industrialism, you know, comes from uh, the industrial revolution and, and factories. And, uh, and it seems likely that as we move into, you know, quote unquote, the creative economy and more sort of digital tools and, um, and creative freedom, um, that we're going to end up with some kind of new philosophy. I don't, I don't know where that is. Um, I don't know where it's going, um, but it seems worthwhile to think about and pay attention to. <laughs> how, how go deeper into how you think about this difference between like belief in systems and, and belief in individuals and, you know, where that, where that manifests and how we sort of design society around that. Yeah. Uh, so I think the best uh, example, the best illustration of belief in systems versus belief in um, individuals comes from uh, the, the, uh, the Avengers uh, Civil War movie. 
where there's these these two characters. There's, there's Iron Man and Captain America, and they're they're arguing about how uh, or they're arguing about whether the superheroes should be uh, should be regulated. Basically, Iron Man thinks that they should uh, enact some kind of regulation and some rules around how the superheroes can act. And Captain America says, like, look, at the end of the day, I just believe in people. Like, I believe in like people that I trust, who are like, uh, who are, like good people. I actually think this is a, a this is a kind of uncommon way to think about the divide between sort of the Democratic and Republican Party today. People who tend to vote Democrat tend to think more in terms of like we're going to build some kind of system that works. People who tend to vote Republican tend to think like, oh, you know, we just need like good people, um, right? So like an example of that is gun control. There's the idea that like we're going to build a system that works, i.e., a system where guns are controlled um, and then there'll be less violence. Whereas sort of the the right wing view is like, look, we just have to have like the right people have to have the guns and then we'll be fine. The system's style of thinking springs from, I think has two roots. The first root is uh, uh, what Martin Gurry in Revolta Republic calls uh, the high modernist style of government. That is the belief that the government can solve everything. So like, um, you know, the government can build nukes, it can put a man on the moon. Therefore also surely the government has the power to improve the economy and make every American happy. Now from, uh, from where I'm sitting today, it seems unlikely that actually the government has the power to make every American happy. But that, that's kind of the attitude that is, uh, uh, that is adopted by that, by that style. This, this idea that, well, the government can do anything. The other route to uh, a belief in systems, especially from the government, um, comes from kind of a behavioral economics view um, that says, like, look, people respond to incentives, and so if we set up the system with the right incentives, then they will have the right behaviors that we... Um, I think the flaw in that thinking is that ultimately there are things that basically the government can't do. And so if we try to do that, if we try to build the government or society in a way that will be able to make everybody happy, maybe that's just impossible and we can't do it. But there's an alternative way of thinking, uh, which comes from sort of the, well, which I'm most familiar with in the Chinese philosophical tradition. I'm sure other people have talked about it. Uh, but in particular, this Chinese philosopher, um, Zhuangzi, who's kind of a predecessor to Taoism, Zhuangzi and Confucius both say, like, look, if you as an individual are, like, morally good, then that moral goodness is actually contagious. And so if you can be, like, a good person, that will cause the people around you to also be good. You will influence them positively. And ultimately they describe as like a sage is like a person who by their, by the force of their own character can actually cause a whole nation to be like better. And that's kind of parallel. Like, like in the Bible, Jesus um, says like, uh, you know, first take the plank out of your own eye before you try to help uh, uh, before you try to remove the, the speck from the other guy's eye. So I think when we notice that we're engaging in this kind of belief in systems and that the systems are failing it, failing us. One thing, one natural response is like, oh, we need, need more systems. We need, we need more rules. We need different rules or whatever. But I think an alternative way of thinking is to say like, you know what? A system is just not going to solve this problem. Um, what we need instead is like individuals who can do good. And that is a, uh, is like a lot harder. I think a lot of the appeal of, of, of a belief in systems comes from the fact that it's like a scalable system. 
like if we enact the right laws, we only have to enact them once and then we'll have the right laws throughout the whole country or whatever. Um, and then everybody will be happy. Whereas like the task of like making every individual like a better person is much more difficult. Um, but I think for some problems, that's the only way to do it. Two more remaining questions. One, can, can you talk about what, if anything, you have to add based on what you've learned from reading Revolt of the Public or Martin Gurry particularly? Yeah. So he talks about basically uh, some of the effects of social media. So, uh, so I became interested in, uh, in reading Revolt of the Public because it's, uh, he supplies one explanation, uh, one, one theory for sort of the current wave of global populism. And, and he talks about it in terms of like information and the internet and everybody being able to talk on the internet and, and, um, and sort of argue on social media. But a big thing that he uh, emphasizes is that many of these problems or many, many of the feelings of populism and, and, and people wanting to protest and, and, and criticize the government stem from a, a feeling of distance between individuals and sort of the, the elites. Um, I think this is a topic that's pretty, I didn't recognize it in, in reading these novels, but it's pretty well illustrated in some of Neil Stevenson's novels, uh, particularly Seven Years and actually his, his new novel, um, Ball. Or, but basically uh, what Kaguri points out is that this sort of belief in the systems leads to a style of government, a high modern style of government, where like there's somebody who's trying to enact these big plans to change the economy, improve the economy, and like make people happy or whatever. But but the more big those plans are, the more sort of uh, the more they require sort of a technocratic elite who, because they're working at an expert level, tend to have this feeling of distance from uh, from sort of the public who you know doesn't understand all the rationale that's going into making these plans. And Gary points out that like it's actually that feeling of distance that uh, that causes a lot of resentment uh, in the public. And I think you can see this uh, in two people who've really successfully overcome. Uh, that distance are, um, you know, Donald Trump and um, rather uh, Trump and AOC both do a really good job of connecting to uh, to their supporters over social media and really making them feel like, uh, you know, the government is now being run by one of them. Um, it's not some faceless, um, uh, unrelatable person who's running the government, but somebody that they can really relate to. Is that that that? that observation about that feeling of distance causing the resentment um, is one of the big things that I took away from Gary. And I think we can see in Trump and AOC sort of what the future of uh, the relations between politicians and uh, individuals is, or, and, and constituencies is going to look like. Lastly, can you talk a little bit about your skepticism of, of timelessness and how that squares with your sort of desire to find things that are both practical but general? So I have a desire to find things that are so good that they're timeless, whether that's in sort of my material possessions or in the ideas that I'm seeking um, or in like the, or in like the, the friends that I'm seeking or whatever. I'll, I'll take an example, like a backpack. Like I, like I really like having a good backpack. And so I want to find, I have this inclination to find a backpack that is, uh, that is like perfect for all my needs and is timeless. I can buy it once and I'll have this backpack for the rest of my life. That idea is really appealing to me. Uh, but actually, there's no such thing as a timeless back uh, because actually my needs 
uh, change over time. And in fact, my knowledge of what my needs are changes over time. So, uh, so what I thought was the perfect backpack, you know, a year ago when I bought it, um, may change. I may start, you know, take up some new sport or I might have to start, I might need a different bag to, to ride my bike around the city or something. And so instead of investing a lot of time and money in like getting the, the perfect timeless bag, it's better to be sort of adaptable to whatever the current needs are, to be both in touch with what the current needs are and also willing to change them or willing to change your behaviors to meet those current needs. So I used the example of buying a backpack, but this is kind of the, the root of, of like the scientific method in terms of, in terms of uh, get, getting new hypotheses and, and refuting them when you get new data and having new experiments that falsify all hypotheses. But it's also a thing that I realized is just like important in, in all my life, um, whether it's the things I'm, the tools that I'm using, uh, the things I have, the habits that I have, um, uh, the ideas that I have. Uh, it's much more important to be, to be willing to change in order to fit my current needs. And that leads to like a sort of incrementalism, basically. That desire for timelessness, I think, comes from both a belief that nothing ever changes and also a kind of arrogance that like you can know with certainty what you're going to need for the rest of, you know, for the rest of eternity. It sounds like having uh, spent too much money on some backpacks that I don't use anymore, <laughs> but ultimately uh, leads to uh, really pragmatic incrementalism in, in all my life and my, my habits and what I'm thinking as well. Yeah. No, this has been awesome. And uh, we're, we're almost at two hours, <laughs> which, which is great. Is there any other idea you wanted to really make sure you, you got across? I think one really important idea that comes from experience that I could only learn from experience is about being nice, basically. Uh, I think I grew up as sort of like a internet nerd who uh, really bought into this cultural archetype of like, kind of like the asshole alpha nerd. This is kind of like how Mark Zuckerberg, the character of Mark Zuckerberg is portrayed in, um, in the social media or the social network movie. You know, there's lots of stories about Steve Jobs being this like, really mean guy to everybody around him. I started uh, my first job when I started working at Twitter, I was surrounded by the smartest people I'd ever been around who also were the nicest people I'd ever been around. That idea that like I could be like really smart and also be really nice was uh, (laughs) actually surprising to me. Um, And not everybody has such an experience, but it was really important to me in developing myself as a person who wanted to be not just really smart, but also really nice. So I don't know if that's a thing that just listening to it can, uh, can view that in people, but uh, if there's anybody who thinks that in order to be brilliant, they have to be an asshole. Um, if I can dissuade them from that idea, that's maybe the most important thing that I can say. <laughs> I dig it. For, for people who want to learn more about you or your work or some of these ideas, where might you point them to? Uh, you should follow me on Twitter um, at Noah LT. Uh, maybe someday I'll get I'll, I'll crystallize more writing into into a blog or something. But for now, uh, my Twitter is the best way to find me. Awesome, uh, Noah. Thank you so much for for coming, and uh, I'm excited for people to listen to this. <laughs> thank you. Um, and it was, it was great to chat. I look forward to continuing our conversations uh, uh, offline and and online. Yeah, absolutely. 
If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.